Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. The following program includes a discussion of death and dying. This content may be disturbing, so I encourage everyone to prepare themselves emotionally before proceeding. If you believe that the program will be traumatizing for you, then you may choose to forgo it or tune into the podcast at a later date at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Things about dying. In my home state, now, by law, those leaving us can tread gently usher themselves towards the light in the dignity they see fit. And I can't remember all of their names. They and I were strangers. But when I heard, I thought of them. Like the kind-eyed man in bed 92, slight form, wasting beneath thin hospital sheets, every morning smiling hopeful, saying, Lass, today might be the day. Week after week, drawing back from the pain, turning away, as I quietly brought the breakfast tray in. My friends and I, we were all going to be somebody back then. Every one of us had a hustle to an end. Me, I worked the hospital kitchen to fund the degree. Eight hours a day on your feet, hot plate burns, clocked meal breaks, industrial dishwashers that could take hands off and once did, 200 kilo trolleys to push, six days on, three days off, November to March from age 18 to 23. It got me here. But I know things about dying that would haunt your dreams. We were always the first to know, down in the plating room, We knew before the doctors did. When the little freckled girl with the bald head and crooked smile left jelly off her order sheet. The leading hand that afternoon was on salt, pepper and cutlery. She yelled down the line in a shaky voice. No dessert for bed 14. Nobody spoke for the rest of meal prep. And after the trolleys were loaded, she gave everyone a break. We went outside and passed around cigarettes. This is a poem by Maxine Benneber Clark, first published in the print edition of the Saturday paper on June 22, 2019. On this show, you will hear from Colleen Hartland, a former Australian politician and an advocate for voluntary assisted dying. You will also hear from Dr. Nira Bhatia, an associate professor in Deakin Law School. First up, Let's hear from Colleen. Um, Colleen Hartland, former Greens Member of Parliament, um, 2006 until 2018. 
in 2008, you introduced a private member's bill, the Medical Treatment Physician-Assisted Dying Bill, to the Victorian Upper House. Um, Can you tell us some of the key differences between your vision then and the new legislation that has come into effect now? I I think, um, you know, to be be fair, when I did that bill, it was the very first bill I'd ever done. And... When you compare it to what the government did, theirs was much superior. It wasn't so much about what was in the legislation. It was their ability to have a very extensive consultation, to have it go to a parliamentary committee, um, to be able to set up an expert reference group. Um, You know, I've got to give Jill Hennessy a great deal of... um, credit because she did do an absolutely amazing job that I as a backbencher could never have possibly done but what I did by doing that bill is I got the conversation started and I was able to then build on that and to keep adding the pressure to the need for assisted dying and these campaigns take a long time and this took 10 years. Mm. And how do you feel about what we have now as uh, Victorians? Um, it's a very conservative bill. There will be a lot of people who will be disappointed because they will feel that it didn't go far enough. But I think with these this kind of legislation, you have to have something that is absolutely transparent, simple to use, and it is... Um, contained to a group of people who, um, who whose lives are ending and so that there cannot be any um, charge that it's just been used to bump people off who have become inconvenient. Yeah, it's, it's a tough balance to, to, to make is. because... Um you know, I, I am of the camp that it is it is quite conservative and there are a lot of people who miss out. Yes. Um, and compared with maybe other pieces of legislation around the same issue across the world, it is one of the most conservative uh, of yes. all the legislations that exist worldwide. Mm. It is absolutely conservative and I'm, I have become a pragmatist on this. It would never have got through the parliament without it being conservative, but also practical. Mm. And I think that's what we have to remember is that it is also a very practical bill. Mm. And And it's not going to suit everybody. People will be disappointed with it. But um, I'm not a, a person who just says, no, we can't have it because it's not perfect. We have got something. Mm. And look, it's it's a great start and it, it can mm. pave the way for more things to definitely happen in the future. Um, and speaking about the future, what kind of other reforms would you like to see in the end-of-life planning and palliative care setting? I think there are two things around palliative care. One, it needs a lot more resources. Um, it needs, especially in country areas, that people can't always access palliative care, especially palliative care at home, I think is incredibly important. So the funding has to increase dramatically because 
you know, people should have the choice to end their lives, but they shouldn't feel obliged to do that just because they don't have good palliative care. So um, I think the two go hand in hand. Mm, definitely. But not everybody gets relief from palliative care, which I think is a real problem for some palliative care um, practitioners who can't acknowledge that for some people palliative care simply does not work. Mm. Women on the line. So you have been an advocate in this area for many years, for over 10 yes. years. What really been. sparked you initially to, to take interest in, in this bill, in this uh, piece of legislation? Uh, several friends who had very bad deaths who um, I know if they'd had a choice about how they were to die would have, you know, asked to be assisted you know, it's, it's those last few weeks and that can just be devastating and watching a friend or a family member go through the most um, terrible indignities. Um, and, in, and it can often not just be about pain. It may be the double incontinence or you might be vomiting feces or you might have shocking pain or, you know, like, you know, you've, you've been put into what is referred to as terminal sedation, so you are kept semi-conscious, but that's no way to die either because you've got no ability to then be able to say goodbye to the people you love. And, you know, like one of the things that really struck me, though they're not covered in this legislation, is with many older people, the coroner actually did a study of... 300 older people and what was really clear that there were a number of murder-suicides in this group and often they were, they'd been married for 60 years and there wasn't any way that they could live mm. without each other and one, you know, got extreme arthritis and can't move around anymore and the other may have a heart condition but neither of them are terminal mm. so they're not entitled to use this legislation and I accept the limits of the legislation, but I do understand why older people would be wanting to access it. But under this, they're not going to. And so we don't really have a solution for those people. For healthcare professionals, you, yes. know, you know, there's a, the, le- the legislation is quite clear about yep. issues around coercion. Yes. So... You know, if, if, if you can tell that someone, someone really needs to clearly articulate that yeah. they are after, um, some sort of assistance, um, mm. in terms of dying. Otherwise, as a healthcare professional, GP, any kind of professional, you cannot start this conversation. It has to That's be up right. to someone to start it. Now, one yep. of my concerns, um, as someone from a non-English speaking background yeah. is that there can be a lot of people who get left out in terms of maybe English or other language um, barriers. So where is the space maybe, you know, do you see any community groups or organizations that aren't in the health field that could maybe take up awareness and advocacy for some people who may miss out because they just don't know? Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. And it was one of the things that, um, from memory, and I'm sorry I can't quote the clause, but it was spoken about in 
the um, legislation that there would there would be an absolute need for people who English is not their first language to have this explained to them, and especially in terms of someone who's doing a um, advanced care directive, that they have to have um, a qualified translator to help them rather than their children so that it is absolutely clear that this is the wishes of that person. So that applies with advanced care directives, um, but it's, I, I think it is a gap and people should have the right to be able to have it explained in their own language but not by a member of their family because then you could be getting into issues of um, coercion. Co- yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, I think it's a really important one to take up with some of the, um, the community groups mm. so that you can have an open discussion about um, what is available and what is acceptable and also for advanced care directives because they can also um, relieve a great deal of suffering in the hospital if someone is, especially an older person, is taken into hospital and it's an emergency and language is a barrier and that their wishes had been quite clear that they did not want to be resuscitated or no heroic measures, but it's never been written down. So it's incredibly important that those conversations are had with the community. And where can people go to find out any more information on voluntary assisted dying or other end-of-life options? I think a really good place is probably... um, There's two organisations that I would recommend. One, Dying with Dignity. They have quite an extensive... Um, website. Um, people should also look at Andrew Denton's organisation, Go Gently. And in terms of advanced care directives, people can just get them online. And I really would urge people to look at them no matter what your age, because you walk outside your house and you get run over by a bus. Does your family know what your wishes are? Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Colleen Hartland, for Women on the Line. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You were just listening to Colleen Hartland, a former Australian politician and an advocate for voluntary assisted dying. We were discussing the new voluntary assisted dying laws in Victoria. Next up is my conversation with Dr. Nira Bhatia, an Associate Professor in Deakin Law School. Let's hear from Dr. Nira Bhatia. Hi, my name is Dr. Nira Bhatia. I'm an Associate Professor of Law at Deakin University in the Law School. I research in the area of health law and bioethics, primarily um, looking at end-of-life decision-making, voluntary assisted dying and organ donation. Voluntary assisted dying legislation uh, is now effect is now in effect in Victoria. However, there's many people who feel that the law is too restrictive and that many people will miss out. Can you elaborate a bit more on some of these concerns? I won't go through all the criteria, but some of the criteria that's probably the most um, important in terms of when we talk about strict is that the person has to be aged 18 or more. 
they have to be an Australian citizen or a permanent resident and, and particularly ordinarily a resident of Victoria. And um, they have to have decision-making capacity, but more importantly, they have to have been diagnosed with a disease or illness that is uh, incurable, uh, advanced, progressive, and will cause death that is predicted to uh, cause death or be expected to cause death within uh, weeks or months, not exceeding six months or not exceeding 12 months if a person has a neurodegenerative condition. So you're absolutely correct in saying that it's not going to be available to all of the Australian uh, community or Victorian community, and there will be members of uh, Victorian communities, such as those perhaps that have dementia, that won't be able to access um, voluntary assisted dying. So it is very, very restrictive in that sense. We're in the very, very early stages of this legislation coming into force, um, but I think there's a lot of work that probably will happen and still needs to happen about engaging um, the broader community and our very, very diverse community here in Victoria in understanding how this legislation works, what this legislation means and who it will be available to. And that is, uh, as I mentioned, our very broad, uh, diverse communities that need to be made aware of of those things that are, are really important in terms of accessing the le- legislation. Mm. Um, and... Anyway, overall, um, end-of-life planning is a very important Mm -hmm. conversation that can be had whether or not someone wishes to take up voluntary assisted dying. But for most people, they hardly ever think about it sometimes until it's too late. Can you talk to us a bit more about other end-of-life planning options that people may have? Yeah, sure. So um, there's a piece of legislation that's actually a really, really powerful piece of legislation that came into force in March last year and um, that was the Medical Treatment Planning and Decisions Act um, that came into effect in Victoria again last year and it's a really powerful tool in allowing people to make choices about their treatment plans for the future and this is where people can uh, make decisions about what treatment they would like or wouldn't like to receive while they still have um, mental capacity and they can make these advanced care plans and put them into place while they have capacity, mental capacity, for a time when they no longer have capacity. Now, it's important to note that this is in no way, shape or form a, uh, a substitute for voluntary assisted dying. It, it doesn't uh, do that. It doesn't allow for that. Um, And that's very, very clear in the legislation. But what it does do is it allows people to plan in advance for the types of treatments that they may wish to continue or to have or may not want to have um, at a time in the future when they no longer have decision-making capacity and it's an advanced care plan. Mm. Um, And the great thing about these advanced care plans is anybody can make them um, and they're legally binding which means nobody can override them and there's two different types there's a a values directive and there's an instructional directive Um, so the instructional directive is where a person makes a legally binding statement 
that is specific to a person's medical treatment decisions. So a person, for instance, might say, um, in the future when I no longer have um, capacity, I may uh, need treatment and I'm happy to have uh, particular types of treatment, but I might refuse a specific type of treatment. So, for instance, I might refuse CPR. Mm. Or I might consent to a particular type of treatment. I might consent to a heart bypass, but I might refuse CPR. So you're you're allowing yourself to make those choices in advance for a time when you may not be able to. And a values directive um, takes into account a person's particular values and preferences. So a person might make a values directive in advance to say, if I get to a particular time in my life where... I no longer am able to recognize my family or friends or I'm no longer able to communicate with them. I no longer wish to receive medical treatment that would prolong my life. So you can see that these are really, really powerful um, legislative tools that give people the choice um, and control to make medical treatments and that is available right now for anybody to, to make. Women on the line. And um, if, if for some of these plans, uh, do people have to do it in conjunction with a doctor or a lawyer? You know, because you can't just write up a will as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, so, but you can. You can go and see your GP every time. And I would endorse this and I would actually encourage people to say, next time you go to your GP and you go and just have a regular health check or you go now in the winter to go and have, you know, a flu jab, talk to your doctor and say that you want to talk about an advanced care plan um, and put these things into place. Now, we're very, um, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, having a will and different things like that and they're things that we put in place for our future. But these, these advanced care plans are just as important and these are things we can do by going and talking to our GP. Mm. And is this, um, does it cover organ donation as well? Because sometimes, you know, some people are organ donors and the family might not know. Yeah, actually, it's a really good point. No, it doesn't cover organ donation and it doesn't cover voluntary assisted dying. They're the two things that um, the Medical Treatment Planning and Decisions Act and advanced care plans do not cover. And that's very, very specific in the legislation that it doesn't cover organ donation and it doesn't cover voluntary assisted dying. But any other treatment plans that you want to consider or medical treatment decisions you want to consider, you can do so by talking to your GP about advanced care plans. Mm. Well, I mean, hopefully the system can be streamlined in the future to tie all of this in. But, you know, anyway, Victoria is the first state in, in Australia to have these kinds of laws, which is really great. Um, do you know what the reaction has been in other states and whether we'll see this kind of change more broadly around the, co- the country? Yeah, that's, look, it's a really interesting question. And I think at this stage, it's probably too soon to say Um I think what we can say is that I'm sure that there are a number of states and territories that are closely watching the developments this week um, and last week in terms of and over the last couple of months as to what has been happening in Victoria. It's a very, very historical moment um, in Victoria and I'm sure other states and territories will be watching over the next few months um, or even over the next 12 months to see how these developments occur 
in Victoria, and if so, and if they wish to to look at how voluntary assisted dying could be implemented um, in their own states. And I think it's important that we um, acknowledge that the Commonwealth um, and state and territory governments have been attempting to uh, reform laws around voluntary assisted dying for more than three decades. And in 1995, the Northern Territory was the first jurisdiction in the world, in fact, to have um, legislation around voluntary assisted dying that was then overturned by the Commonwealth Government. And we've had had 51 bills Mm. uh, that were introduced um, to the Commonwealth state and territory level to deal with voluntary assisted dying. But it is one of those very polarizing issues um, in society. So I think every other state and territory will be keeping a very close eye on what's happening in Victoria and having um, uh, being very observant to see how these developments occur before they make any decisions as to whether they want to implement similar legislation. Mm. And uh, just finally, where can people go to find out more information about voluntary assisted dying as well as other end-of-life options that we've discussed today? Sure. So, um, Victorian, um, this is obviously Victorian legislation, so um, anyone that's listening can go to the Department of Health and Human Services website, the dhs.vic.gov.au website, and also just the um, Victorian Health um, website, so www.health.gov.au. There's uh, a raft of resources on the Victorian um, government website that provides an overview of voluntary assisted dying as well as um, lots of other information about um, voluntary assisted dying and help sheets and um, just information about the review board and um, and different information about the eligibility criteria as well. Mm. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Women on the Line, Dr. Neera Bhatia. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. We've come to the end of my conversation with Dr. Neera Bhatia, an associate professor in Deakin Law School. We were discussing voluntary assisted dying laws in Victoria. Before that, you heard my conversation with Colleen Hartland, a former Australian politician and an advocate for voluntary assisted dying. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and non-binary broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Latigram. I'm Hope Matungu and I hope you can tune in again next time.